my friends, the great experiment. The greatest trick, trick, trick. Hit it. Trick, trick. Would you look at that? The greatest trick, trick. Two people, you're all astronauts. Some kind of star trick, trick. Welcome to Greatest Trek. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Pilot season. Yeah. What is this, week three, week four, something like that? I think it's week four. But were we to have interdimensional travel capability? Like, who knows, who knows man? What episode <laughs> Doppel Adam and Doppel Ben are on? Yeah. I feel like this show is kind of. It's, it sort of like wishes it were in a different version of the universe than it was in. Did you read about sliders and like its history on television at all? Tell me that. Tell me the history of sliders, the television show. Well, this is based on a skim, not a deep dive, but um, it was on Fox for like its first three seasons and then went over to sci fi. And I think uh, the creators. Tracy Torme and uh, the other guy, what's his, <laughs> what's his nose? Uh, You're talking about Robert K. Weiss. Yeah. How could you forget? So interesting pedigree on these two guys, right? Because Tracy Torme, TNG guy, mm-hmm. we know that. Robert K. Weiss kind of comes from the Lorne Michaels universe. Yeah. Produced a lot of uh, the like film adaptations of SNL sketches. And, you know, I think his first credit is on Kentucky Fried Movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he worked with uh, with Zaz. Pretty like different sides of the entertainment industry tracks mm-hmm. for these two guys. But I guess uh, oh, so Torme had like a stint as a writer on SNL before before moving over to Greatest Gen. So not not totally opposite sides of the tracks. Amazing that there would even be tracks between those two careers, right? <laughs> Oh, get a life. But so they made this show and we're trying to make a pretty like ideas based show. And I guess John Reese Davies dogged out the scripts from jump. He was like, this is a great idea for a TV show. I'm glad to be a part of it. I wish they would start writing episodes that actually live up to the cool premise they came up with. <laughs> and conversely, the Fox television network upon which the show was airing was like, no, this needs to be more of an action series where like guys are swinging in windows and shooting machine guns and stuff. Do that. That's what gets butts in seats. That's what's going to get mm. ratings for sliders. And so eventually, Torme was off the show and Sam Peckinpah's nephew was brought on to show run after that point. And you're talking about Paul Peckinpah? <laughs> yeah. And so like... There's a whole like animus around that where like Tracy Torme has made public statements about how bad the direction David Peckinpah took it was. The phrase jump the shark was tossed around in these recaps that I read. And then it gets dumped by Fox, but Sci-Fi Network, back when it was spelled like science fiction, uh-huh. picked it up. And by the end, like almost none of the main cast is still involved. Almost none of the original creative team is still involved. And they are just churning out episodes. And there's some like whispers that maybe uh, the show will will make a rebound at some point. Like Tracy Torme 
and John Reese davies and Jerry O'Connell have all been quoted in recent years expressing interest in doing that? Well, I mean, it's too late for Tracy Torme, who died three weeks ago. Oh, shit. Are you kidding me? Uh, yeah, kind of a, oh, a no. terrible coincidence. Oh, man. I did not realize. That's a shame. Yeah. RSVP Tracy Torme. Yeah. Well... Somebody needs to go in and edit the Wikipedia then. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It was, uh, it was interesting to read about all of the behind-the-scenes drama that plagued this show and think about, you know, what an optimistic moment like a successful pilot is in the creative life of a thing. It sure is wild to look at, like, Wikipedia does this so well. They do the, the graph the bar graph of like characters and seasons and how far those lines go for yeah. each character and actor. And it's just amazing to follow along with what you were saying about where the show was and where it was aired and for how many years. And then to see like all of those actors fall away and get yeah. replaced by others and stuff. Yeah. Almost the drama of that makes me more curious like, I kind of would be down to watch this series just to see, like, when I feel like it comes off the rails and if that agrees with any of the people that have talked about it in public. You know what? We'll have to save an experiment like that for a finale season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next time we get a, a great big break in between new Star Trek series. Yeah. I mean, God willing, that never happens. But um, also, uh, one of the stars of the show in season four was Charlie O'Connell, who I'd never heard of. Brother of Jerry O'Connell. Look at that guy. What a great-looking family. Yeah. Just hunks all around. Yeah. But, Adam, what if, why don't we see if the drama of this pilot stacks up against the drama that happened behind the scenes over the <laughs> production of this series? God, just championship-quality pivot there. <laughs> ben, let's get into it. Our fourth week of pilot season is all about what I recall a very popular TV show from the mid-90s from the Fox Television Network. It's Sliders, Pilot, Part 1 and 2. You know the greatest danger facing us is an irrational fear of the unknown. Because I'm a slider. One nerve. Our cold open is in uh, a, San a San Francisco basement. <laughs> I was born here. <laughs> In, you know, more of a figurative sense. Boy, have I seen a lot of these. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we, uh, we get it like a self-tape. Um, it's Jerry O'Connell <laughs> speaking to camera. Actors hate these. Yeah, you know. It's the industry putting a bunch of the work, a bunch more of the work of auditioning onto the actors. But yeah, he's, uh, this is kind of his like video diary. And uh, he is kind of a... Teen genius, mad scientist working in his basement, and he's got a very like homemade looking gadget. Kind of looks like it's made out of like parts that he got at the Army Navy surplus store. You know, it's got that kind of like vintage naval shape to it. Right. Yeah. A doting mother would suspect that he's just like home brewing or something, you know? Right. He's uh, he's making booch down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he is. Uh, he's excited about this uh, this invention that he's made. 
get a, just a soupçon of of what's exciting to him about it, though. Not not too much revealed just yet. And these opening credits, I feel like for many of the pilots we've watched, the opening credits are not what become this the credit sequence later on. And these also feel very temped up. Yeah. Too. This is a. This really felt like it was straight out of Back to the Future. The the lingering floating camera over a young adult's room and and all of their things to sort of uh, teach you about your main character through the things that they have. Yeah, I mean, this does sort of posit a Marty McFly that's a little bit smarter than Doc Brown. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right on down to the clock radio that wakes him up. Yeah. This clock radio's got kind of like a local shock jock on it, uh, talking about how people in San Francisco don't have jobs, so they can continue to lay about. But those East Bay people get to work. It's true. I mean, uh, the the shock jock is as judgy about labor as Quinn's mother is. <laughs> Except in the opposite direction, Mom is really concerned about how hard her baby boy's working. Yeah. He's uh, he's b- maybe burning the candle at both ends, as it were. They seem to have that rapport of like a a smart kid that gets so much respect from their parents; they're almost equals in yeah. the household. Oh yeah, and you often find this in in stories involving dead parents, like the surviving parent and the kid are like on the same kind of level in rank. They're weird roommates. And when are you gonna make up my room? You just watch it, Buster. Two more semesters and I'm turning this place into a bed and breakfast. Uh, I got dibs on the basement. Uh, he's got like a Michio Kaku book on his uh, on his belly that he's like a presumably fallen asleep reading. Uh, I don't recognize that, what is that? Oh, he's like a, uh, writes popular science. You know, here's, uh-huh. here's like, here's some, some like bleeding edge research in quantum physics and uh you know writes it in a way that a that a dad can appreciate. You know who who probably really likes reading the books of Kaku? <laughs> Stephen Inch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh a cutesy relationship between him and his mom. She wants him to like change his shirt. Can't wear the same shirt two days in a row. And he goes downstairs, changes shirts, and uh, watches more of his video diaries. And this is when we get to see the home. Four. I was a little bumped by this. Like, why is he watching his own videos? <laughs> like, other than to educate the viewer and bring us up to speed on where he's at, like, it doesn't seem like there's any in-universe reason for him to be doing it. Yeah, it... Definitely feels like a thing that was sort of a trope in the 90s, though. Like, the, like it's not quite the dirty work note to self trope where Norm MacDonald's always, like, recording things on a tape recorder. But it's not not that, you know? Remember, no matter how bad life gets, there is always beer. It's as if the possession of a camcorder is still so novel that to have one as, as someone this age means you must be recording. Like... You gotta use this cool device. Right, and like the full potential of it feels unrealized as yet to everybody that's walking around seeing that like you can walk into any mall and and walk out with, you know, a pretty decent 
piece of hardware to to make your own home movies. Like, what are people doing with this? Maybe some people are making diaries and cataloging their research. Right. Yeah. I mean, also, like, if you got footage of a hole that looked like this, wouldn't you watch it over and over? <laughs> Like, until you see this on screen, just the idea on that this existed on paper as just a guy watching movies of himself talking about a hole he's excited about, <laughs> thinking about going in it. Yeah. What would he do if he's there? His mom is right upstairs. Like, he didn't even lock the door when he went down. It's kind of yeah. risky <laughs> putting this tape on. You're just going to have to trust that this is going to translate to screen. Yeah. Mom is upstairs uh, talking to a picture frame with uh, her dead husband inside when Quinn pops up to head out to class. And he drives a blue BMW 2002. This is the round taillight 2002. This is a car that was my first car. No kidding. first car ever. I love a 2002. Great car. So I had good feelings for Quinn right away from his choice in vehicles. Yeah. So uh, he's uh, running through the bucolic environs of his college. We don't know which college yet. He, he walks past a raving hobo on a park bench uh, talking about how communism is coming for all of us. Join the revolution or suffer the consequences. Thanks for the warning. And then uh, the camera pans over. It turns out we're at Cal. It's a good school. Yeah. I mean, it's where my wife went. Oh, okay. She's pretty clever. Good enough for her. Not clever enough to avoid getting married to me, but... This is a very poorly attended physics class <laughs> taught by Maximilian Arturo. And these students, what few of them there are, seem pretty disengaged. And this is something that Arturo isn't too involved in his own teaching to to recognize like he sees it he sees the detachment in their faces yeah he knows from their inability to answer his questions that they're just kind of checked out this is crushing to him the silence is deafening it's not great uh it seems like like to hear him say it this is the best and the brightest these are are very advanced physics students and uh i can't parse the techno babble he's talking to to know whether or not that's true. Quinn is just doodling in his notebook, but also there's a little gag where, you know, like the second the professor turns his back, Quinn reveals himself to to know the answer. So I don't quite get the like, hey, fuck you, professor. I'm not I'm not gonna dance and tell you the answer you're asking the class for. You remember this from classes though? Like when the teacher wants a raised hand to answer a question like very few people are interested in being that person yeah it never happened in any of my classes i always gave the answer you were always the hand raiser yeah 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 that was you they loved me (laughs) so it's clear that the students are smart like even even quinn they're they're just not engaged with this guy yeah and uh he's feeling really frustrated with with all this where is a genius going to work besides a computer store in the mid-90s? That's where Quinn works. Yeah. Our opening shot here is a co-worker of Quinn's. This is Wade Wells walking a business executive through a, through a buying decision and kind of doing that great salesperson thing of like, 
Yeah, you know, you don't really need this. You need the next thing, so why don't you wait? Yeah. I love a salesperson that takes this tack. Wade and Quinn's boss, not so much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Quinn shows up, and, and Wade meets him in the back. It's very clear that, that Wade has a little bit of a thing for Quinn, that he is sort of oblivious to, or maybe just not interested in the same way. Hi, Quinn. Hey, I, I scored those hockey tickets. Oh, great. She's boofing. Big time. She's boofing big time. She's also doing that thing that I think was so so common in the 90s, not so much anymore, uh, wearing that dress over blouse combination. That was a, a product of its time. Yeah. Still really works for me. Still almost totally gone. <laughs> I know. Though. I, like, so many things have been brought back from the 90s, like big jeans. Mm-hmm. Why can't this come back, too? Here we go again. <laughs> Uh, stating a preference for women's clothes. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you know, Ben, I got in big trouble for that not too long ago. I take it all back. I, I take it all back. <laughs> Everybody can w- wear whatever makes them feel great. There you go. How about that? Would you look at that? So later, Quinn drives home and gets right back into the basement and he turns on the power to the gateway. And... He has not opened the hole yet. He needs to watch more videos of himself. Yeah. And in these videos, this time he's describing a remote control that he set up in such a way where like he's been throwing things into this hole. And now he can use this remote control to have those things thrown back at him. It's great. Yeah. It's a, you know, you can really give this hole the old in out, (laughs) as it were. Maravilloso. Crucially, like he's he's got like almost everything he needs to test this. He he would love to test this by throwing the cat in the hole, but he doesn't know what's on the other side. And if if the cat gets torn apart by some kind of uh, electrical field, he could just not live with himself. So it's going to be him that does the first live test of this thing. Some shows that we've been watching of this era, like the cut to commercial is almost seamless, right? Like there's a quick blurp and then we're into the scene that follows and it's almost as if it never happened. But this is one of those cuts that goes to commercial and then it's the next morning that he's talked about. He's like, tomorrow morning, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Cut to commercial. It's the next morning. I'm doing it. Well... Here goes nothing. I think that the design of his basement is is really well done. Like it it feels really scrounged up and like all of the all of the crap that he has is pretty is pretty handmade looking. I'm gonna keep comparing Quinn and his environment to every other 80s guy that I've enjoyed over the years. Like he's he's Billy from Gremlins. Like he's got his cool living space at home. Yeah. That that was so aspirational. Like all I wanted to do was either live in the basement or the attic and I never got either. Right. Like from Pee Wee's Playhouse to Matthew Broderick and War Games yeah. to yeah. Gremlins, like every late teens kid in the 80s had some kind of lab going at home. Yeah. <laughs> and this compares really well with, with those in terms of design. No one's allowed to have a lab anymore, Ben. I know. They all became meth labs and they, you know, yeah. the only people with labs on TV anymore are like, uh, you know, Heisenberg on uh, on Breaking Bad. But the other thing that this really uh, did well for me is give the sense that Quinn is 
toying with powers that he has not fully mastered. Like he's like, yeah, I could throw the cat through, but it would it could destroy the cat, so I'm going to go myself. Like it bespeaks that Quinn has like really bad judgment while also having a galaxy brain, and like the like unfinished equation on the on the chalkboard kind of has the same vibe to it, right? There's like a a huge equation done out on a chalkboard with a bunch of question marks at the end of it. And it's like, you're jumping through the hole when you got the question marks there. Like this seems bad. (laughs) It's really a continuation of the suspicion we have that Quinn is terrible with women because we get that scene of him with Wade at his work. And like, that's weird. He's, he's that oblivious (laughs) doofus in that scene. And then in this scene, he, instead of sticking his finger in, just wants to put all of himself in first thing. And you just can't do that, Quinn. You can't. You got to start with a finger. Yeah, and then, like, work your way up to poking your head through and seeing if it, like, pokes out on another side or whatever. Yeah, this whole jumping in business. Like, he's a scientist in the academic sense, but not in the logic sense. (laughs) Yeah, He's also uh, crucially made an updated version of his gadget. The first one looked really uh, scrounged together. The second one, it looks like a cell phone of the era. Like it's it's mm-hmm. compact. It's got uh, like digital readout. Yeah, it's a uh, really nice workmanship by him. I'm, I'm not quite sure how he achieved this. When he jumps in, I think what's nice about the effect is like the whole effect manages an expectation of what being inside the tunnel will be. Yeah. So it's not a huge letdown, but it is a very neon (laughs) esophageal tunnel space situation. It's a screensaver, isn't it? (laughs) It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 I, I did feel like it was very throaty. That that shape, I feel like, does imply that heavily. They do have great confidence in the effect because we are in this space for a while before he transits all the way to the other side. Maybe this is a good time to talk about the resolution of this show to begin with. Yeah. Which I found, like, unlike the, the Sequest episode we watched, which seemed to go from SD to snap into, you know, a, a visual fidelity that wasn't totally shit. Like, Sliders always maintained its veneer of of shit. Like, this is not... <laughs> this has not been a remastered program no. in any way, has it? It is not. And I uh, I mean, it's definitely shot on film just based on what it looks like. But, uh, I mean, if Sequest can get rescanned to HD, Sliders should be able to, right? Like, wasn't Sliders bigger than Sequest? I, I would think, but... It seemed like it at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I wish it was looking a little better. I watched this on the Peacock app. I don't know how you saw it. Yeah, I did as well. So he lands uh, in his lab, having gone through this hole, and his mom is like, yeah, you got to get to get to class. Everything basically seems the same on the other side of this hole. But uh, he starts driving to class, and that same shock jock from before is on the radio talking about global cooling? And red means go? Yeah, I mean, this is a rock and Ricky Rialto situation, who is uh, 
excited about the death of CDs and the ascendance of vinyl records? Like, who would have thought, right? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I like that this show did not have the budget to get a couple of streetlights up on poles that had the red at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Can't do that. No. No. I mean, but it does make it more confusing for Quinn to drive around. That's true, yeah. In he, that same way. He keeps stopping at lights where he should be going and going at lights where he should be stopping. And uh, he passes a billboard with Elvis on it. Elvis is alive in this timeline. What a thing. Yeah. What a dream. Oh. I'd love that. Here's what confused me. He just left his house. He's driven presumably to go to class past the Elvis billboard, and then he pulls up at his house. Yeah, yeah, he turns right around. What, was it that he was freaked out by what was going on, or? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. I, I wasn't getting like, fuck, I gotta get home, like, this is, this is too messed up. But uh, yeah, when he gets home, many things are strange. For one thing, the gate, not squeaky. For two, yep. mom has dyed her hair, or yep. maybe not dyed her hair. We can mm -hmm. never know. <laughs> Three, she is in a, a committed romantic relationship with the gardener. Quinn does not approve. I mean, you and Jake? He's our gardener. It's so committed that mom is pregnant with his baby. Yeah. Uh, and Quinn's like yelling at her that she's a class traitor. And uh... <laughs> we get the single brass instrument of my gardener dumped into my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that single brass instrument, Ben, we gotta yeah. we gotta talk about the fact that Dennis McCarthy does the music for this show, and we really do. Its similarity to TNG music is unmistakable. It you could use TNG music for sliders and sliders for TNG. Yes, it sort of sounds like that's what they did. Like yeah. a couple of those cues feel like they might have just been pulled directly from TNG. Yeah. So this is shocking, uh, but a hole opens up right behind him and sucks Quinn back into the basement, and he's back in his own reality after 15 minutes on the other side. He's so happy to be there. He is like George Bailey from the end of It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> he is running and screaming and happy to see the Emporium. Kisses his mom on the lips. And the movie house. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. He, he runs all the way to class. Yeah. After uh, thanking the gardener profusely for not having dumped in his mom. Yeah. Yeah, hey, uh, why don't you keep the fertilizer on this side of the door? <laughs> Out in the yard, buddy. <laughs> Boy, when he gets to class, Prof is there, and Prof is furious with him. The Einstein-Rosen-Podolsky bridge, I crossed it. Get out of my class! We both really enjoy John Rhys-Davies whenever he pops up in the stuff that we watch. But I don't feel like we get angry John Reese davies very often. And when he shows you that gear, it is dark. Yeah. I was kind of blindsided by this. As blindsided as Quinn was that he was so upset with him. Like, there's such a, like, jocularity with him normally. Like, he's loud, yeah. but he's also, like, uh, oh, you know, he's just, like, loud John Reese davies Yeah. But, like... 
grumbly, angry, you know, dark storm cloud John Reese davies Ooh. Don't you ever talk about my theories like that again. I'm kind of glad we don't see that very much from him or his characters. Yeah. He's really got it. Dole it out sparingly. Yeah. John Reese davies Yeah. He's so pissed to see Quinn, he straight up cancels class early. Because apparently Quinn just told him off big time. Like all of the classmates as they're filing out are like high-fiving Quinn like, wow, man, you really gave it to him. Mm -hmm. Whoa. And Quinn is just confused by this. Yeah. So he, I guess, goes to work early. (laughs) Yeah, because that's what you do at this age. (laughs) This was the most unrealistic part of the episode. (laughs) A person Quinn's age gets released from class early And instead of fucking off the rest of the afternoon, he goes to work early? Maybe there's something drawing him to to Wade that uh, he he hasn't even articulated to himself. Yeah, Wade seems surprised to see Quinn there. Yeah. (laughs) She's like, you better go before our boss calls the cops, because they have this kind of pencil dick boss that neither of them likes very much, who is, I mean, more on Wade's case than on Quinn's case, right? Like, Wade just sent... $20,000 $20,000 packing for the promise of $50,000 in business next month when the 680s come out. Yeah, but, I mean, Wade's got a real, like, Wimpy's Burgers philosophy at the computer store. Sure. I understand it. I'll <laughs> gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Quinn has been fired from this job, and he uh, he gets the tea from Wade that he also showed up at, at his work and told his boss to, to shove it. Like, he has burned his life down in 15 minutes. This was a 15-minute trip to another universe, and when he gets back, everything has been fucked up. Is he more surprised that he's lost his job and insulted his professor, or that he has also kissed Wade? It was really great. In a moment that is very meaningful to Wade, and... Definitely regretful to Quinn. So this was a moment where I started to ask myself, has he actually made it back to his reality or is it very slightly different Mm. in some key ways? Yeah. And I don't think that the episode ever like a million percent answers that question. I think by the very end of the second part of this pilot, you can't be sure that these folks have have been home, or could ever get home. Yeah. Speaking of, he gets out of work and uh, gets home where things are not catastrophic the way they've been everywhere else he's visited. Uh, (laughs) Checking the mom for gardener dumps. (laughs) (laughs) All right, mom, let me smell downstairs. Oh, Jesus. It's so gross. (laughs) It's your premise, man. <laughs> Why does it smell like miracle grow in here? <laughs> Mom! There's smashed petunias all over the foot of your bed. Come on! His mom is arranging flowers while watching TV. There's like a you know, TV lawyer ad playing. Has this ever happened to you? But Quinn walks in, he's like, everything cool between us? And his mom's like, why wouldn't it be, Quinn? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sure you'll piss me off eventually, but you haven't so far today. When we get back into the basement and we meet Doppel Quinn, we've got to remember 
that Doppelquin has been down there for a while, right? With the prime mob. Yeah. Being upstairs. Right. How did he get there? Why is he there? It does seem like a big enough house that you can kind of come and go undetected some of the time. Yeah. But he had 15 minutes to get to Cal, completely (laughs) torch Quinn's relationship with his professor, get to the computer store, quit that and lay one on Wade and get home and, and be hiding in time for Quinn to get back there. And he timed that all perfectly. Like, it seems like he knows something that Quinn doesn't, right? I think there's an efficiency to all of these events that subtly suggests that Doppel Quinn might be evil, right? Yeah. Like, and there's also a performance aspect to this, too. Like, Jerry O'Connell's double seems not regretful at all about his actions, ultra confident about his own intelligence, that he just solved the equation on the chalkboard. Yeah. Is a big surprise to Quinn Prime. He's also styled in a way that's like much less rumpled than Quinn. Like Quinn's always wearing like a jacket and a and a flannel and a polo shirt. And this guy's got kind of like a clean dress shirt. Yeah. And like cooler hair. Quinn Prime has like a wash day hair. And yeah. Doppel Quinn has like three days since washed hair. Oh, man. It's a little, little more tightened up. So good. Yeah. And so we get the Will Riker talking to Tom Riker effect. Well, yeah. we get some some key exposition from this guy. He, he teaches us the term sliders. You're sliding when you're going from one dimension to another. You have no control over your destination. That's always a gamble. And he's done this like eight or nine times and... There's an ideal world out there that he visited once that he really wants to get back to. Like, there's there's one that's great. There's also a, a gremlins rule, the most important rule, the rule that he's got to remember. And it has such a preamble to it that <laughs> Doppel Quinn runs out of time to articulate it before he's sucked back into the hole. Uh-oh. Yeah. Gotta cut to the chase. Come on, come on, spit it out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe say the rule first and then emphasize how important that rule is. Yeah. That would have been nice. He really Yoda's this. Like, he's like, yeah, mm-hmm. you've got a sister. She also has the force. I'm not going to get any more specifics on that before I die. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's a knock at the front door and mom lets in Wade and Professor Arturo. <laughs> it does not seem like they have met mom before. Ever. And it also felt like pretty random that they have met each other before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, A, what persuaded them to meet up with each other and B... Where like, did they meet? Where did, like, did Arturo go to the computer store? Yeah, and he's like, I, I know that I uh, sent Quinn away from class in kind of a huff today, but he did say I could get a 25% discount on my next personal computer, and I wanted to see if that was still a possibility. What did they talk about in the car ride over? Yeah. Because, like, Amazing. She's, she's not mad at Quinn, but he is. So what are they there for? Hard to say. <laughs> well, he's in the basement as usual. You know what? Like, just about the point where these questions start coming into your mind, this show 
rips you away from this <laughs> scene and throws you at Rembrandt Brown getting dressed for a, a gig that evening singing the national anthem at the San Francisco Giants game. Yeah. It's going to be the thing that uh, puts him back on top. His singing career has kind of been fallow. Yeah. Yes. For a while, he, he's ready to, for a comeback, and this is going to be it. Well, we see like his old stuff. It was like Motown. He was part of a, a group called the Spinning Tops, and he was known professionally as the Crying Man. He had like three backup singers doing dances, choreographed in front of tinsel. This is great stuff. I really do like this. It was really well done. I wish the choreography had been... 90% tighter because yeah. it really seems like they threw that together like as they were shooting it. But yeah, he's got like a manager there who's trying to keep his feet on the ground with this I'm relaunching my music career thing tonight. You're singing the anthem at a Giants game, not performing for the Queen. We don't know why we are introducing this story. Like there's, you get nothing to prepare you for this being a character on the show up till now. It's very jarring. It's jarring to the point where it feels like the channel has been changed. Yeah, right. Like if you if you walked out of the room and came back uh, after a commercial break, you'd assume your cat walked across the couch and changed it. <laughs> right. Back in the basement, uh, Arturo and Wade have walked down the steps. And Arturo, for just being insulted and rip shit pissed has now become impressed yeah. that Quinn has solved the proof that they were working on for the unified field theory. The unified field theory right there on the chalkboard. Yeah. And uh, it was that little section in the corner with the question marks got erased and, and filled in by Doppel Quinn. Oh my God, you've solved it. Like, all is pretty much forgiven. He's like, you're an asshole, and unfortunately, you're also, like, the most important mind in physics right now, and and you've solved it. Quinn could not be more bored by this. He's like, you think that's cool? Check out my hole. <laughs> Four. And he blurps this thing on, and it's amazing. Like, Quinn is sort of neutral to its presence and Arturo and Wade have very different impressions by it. Like Arturo wants to study it. He wants to keep it at a remove. Yeah. Wade wants to like get in it immediately. That is so cool. Where do I sign up? And I guess she is the tipping point because now they all have to go. Whenever there's like a chalkboard full of math in a show, like I don't, you know, I stopped math in fourth grade. High school, I stopped taking it senior year because my advisor was like, you're applying to art schools. You don't need to impress them with your math scores. And I was like, oh, cool. So I don't need to take AP Calc? And he was like, no. And I was like, oh, thank God. Damn. So I don't know what any of this stuff means. I don't know if there are people that like look at this stuff and see parsable information. But Arturo's glance at this chalkboard and uh, like he's looked at it for a split second before he's like, you've done it. <laughs> In sort of the way that, like, on Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, they'd, like, get the script for a sketch in their hands. and be like, this is funny stuff. Like, they'd, like, uh -huh. just have looked at it, and they'll start going, like, yeah, this is really good. I recognize the unified field theory immediately. Like, I don't know where you've been, 
but like I see Calvin pissing on the unified field theory all the time. <laughs> In the stickers on rear windows of cars. Oh man, that's coming to podshop.biz. <laughs> so unlike before, Quinn set the timer for like 15 minutes. Now we set the timer for five hours. And this was the moment in the show where I started to think back about Doppel Quinn. Like whenever you transit the slide... Are you replacing someone who goes back with you? How was Doppel Quinn in the basement before? That's totally unanswered. So when they hop in, in the back of my mind, I was expecting there to be a, a, a transfer of those characters. Yeah. And it feels like either Doppel Quinn came on purpose when he knew regular Quinn was going to be away so that he could like solve the equation and fuck his life up enough to push him into this adventure. But that would totally contradict what he told Quinn Prime earlier, which was, it's just a roulette wheel, man. You don't know where you're going. It's hard to wrap your mind around like what he was doing and what he said he was doing being entirely in line with each other. Especially because... This is going to be hard to hold together because we're going to jump around a little bit in time. But like later on, Arturo talks about the property of time and how the dimensionality of all of this always moves in sync Yeah. on that same timeline. So that means this wasn't a future Quinn that was Doppel Quinn coming back to inform a previous version of himself. Like that was concurrent Doppel Quinn. Yeah. As far as we know. Yeah. One other thing is he has to crank up the power to to uh, yeah. <laughs> make the hole big enough to, to fit all three of them. God help us. This is a big mistake. If you're trying to fit into the hole, cranking up the power is not what you want to do. No, no. You, it's, it's like slow and steady wins the race when it comes to these things. Exactly. And no surprise Quinn doesn't know this, though. Yeah, no no surprise the hole uh, runs off to Rembrandt after he tries yeah. this move. <laughs> yeah. Cuz uh, they they jump in and then like the hole like goes through the wall out of the house onto the street and Rembrandt drives the red sled right through through it and into a snowbank on the other side. It's cold over there. It really is. Uh, he wrecks his car, and nobody is dressed for this. I want I wanted the actors to do more with how uncomfortable they must have been in this environment. Yeah, they do a great job with the set, you know, hitting it with the fire extinguisher. Yeah, dressing it with the flocking. It looks great. It's the yeah. it's the basement, but empty mm -hmm. and uh, full of cobwebs. Yeah, when they come out, they, they meet Rembrandt, and so they realize that they've, they've grabbed somebody else that hadn't signed up for this adventure. I mean, this is a problem. They're not, they're not provisioned to spend five hours in a life-threateningly cold environment. Yeah, Quinn, what are you doing? Like, you go from 15 minutes to five hours? It's a big jump. Yeah. You should have listened to the professor. The professor was urging caution, yeah. <laughs> you know? Find some other things a little bit off about this. Too. Uh, Quinn finds a, a family picture in a drawer and uh, this picture depicts his family including a long lost puppy and a sister he doesn't remember having. That's the gardener's daughter, right? <laughs> I think we can agree on that. 
yeah, her her name is Miracle Gronia. Yeah. <laughs> they go outside. There's a a really fucked up digital effect of like frozen over San Francisco. We're not in Kansas anymore. Didn't you expect this to be the cliff? Wide shot of frozen San Francisco. Yeah. Smash to credits now. That'd be perfect. Perfect cliff, but yeah, I don't know how this aired. If it aired in two parts over two weeks or if it aired all at once and then got split up for syndication, but uh, this is two discrete episodes uh, as we watched it, and the cliff is not here. They get in the car and they're like talking about it. Rembrandt is, is trying to get them to explain what's going on, but every like Quinn and the professor are the only ones that know, and they speak into technical of language for Wade and, and Rembrandt really to understand. They hear like a howling from outside. It should also be stated that they put the top up mm-hmm. on the red sled, yeah. which was a convertible. I guess it still is with the top up, right? You don't cease to be a convertible when you put the top up. Right. It's like when you get divorced, it's not like you you stop being Jewish. 3,000 years of beautiful tradition from Moses to Sandy Koufax. You're goddamn right I'm living in the fucking past. That's exactly the reference I would have made uh, to compare. Yeah. The, the cutaway to the tornado was confusing because I didn't see it. Like, it's the sound. Yeah. But it, it, it was like looking at static to me. It's a really janky digital effect. And like the first one is really bad. There's a second shot you get of it that's a little bit clearer that it's a tornado, but it was... It was hard to see on my screen, and uh, they're like, this is coming right for us. We got to open the hole. Like, we're going to die if we don't just jump through it. You know, who cares what's on the other side? And he's been warned by Doppel Quinn that one of the things you can't do is mess with the timer, but that's what he's got to do. Yeah. Yeah, what was it that he said? It was just a lot of screaming. Yeah. So he cranks the timer and unfortunately, he's holding the uh, device so that the hole opens up in the sky above them. So, you know, he has to like boost people up on his knee to get him up into it. What a disaster this was. What if it was three feet further up? Yeah. They wouldn't have even been able to reach it. Yeah. Yeah, seems bad. Quinn is really not good at this. Yeah. They've got to ditch the car. So the professor and Wade and Rembrandt go through. And they land uh, on grass, nice sunny Golden Gate Park on the other side. And uh, the cliff is whether or not Quinn is also going to make it through. Sounded like you got emotional there, Ben. And that's exactly what Wade is. Please, Quinn. Yeah. Wade's staring at that hole, waiting for Quinn to get out of it. It's not happening. Please. She really loves him, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I loved the credits rolling over the crying man though (laughs) it's it's such a bump because it totally removes the anxiety of what's gonna happen to quinn and replaces (laughs) it with like a fun little bop yeah it's a good bop yeah we need to score a lot of laps fast licensed businessmen What do you think of when you think of male grooming? Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product, or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. 
And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from what am I gonna have for dinner to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals. And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Hi, Adam Pranica here for Podshop.biz, the easy way to dress, drink, and decorate virtually anything fast with embarrassment that lasts. Podshop.biz is not a cult. And it's not a multi-level marketing scheme. It's a supercharged carousel of crap spinning at a high rate of speed for all your dorky needs. Ordinary web stores are a mess, but with Podshop.biz, you'll find products from all of our shows referring to many of our most popular bits. Shirts, glasses, and bags from other websites can damage your mood, but not with Podshop.biz. Our nerdy, jokey bullshit will rebuild your damaged attitude and turn you into a person with riz. Turn your laptop from off the shelf to off the hook with a sticker. Make pool time cool time with our line of hilarious swimwear. And stop raw-dogging your smartphone. Strap it up with the choice of designs that'll have you go from saying hello to hello. But that's not all. At podshop.biz, you can choose from the Brenner Information Systems Collection, the Uxbridge Shimoda Corporate Collection, this old enterprise, logos for Greatest Generation and Greatest Trek, and more. Order now at podshop.biz. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? 
Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on. Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. This ship and her history will shortly become the care of another crew. They will continue the voyages we have begun. The greatest trek. So we get our actual opening sequence on the other side of this at the start of part two. And this drove me insane. <laughs> they, they show a full minute of the end of the last episode. Yeah. Well, well, they show a title sequence first that's like, there's a little bit of a Lord's Prayer, like, I found the gateway that mm-hmm. goes between worlds. And then, yeah, we pick up, like, and rewatch the end of the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny to me what this show thinks is important because like I think I might have preferred a little bit more of a of a clip show preamble. Like yeah. yeah. Show me some events, <laughs> not just people coming out of the hole. Last time on. Yeah. Yeah, that's not this. By the time we endure that minute again, Quinn has popped out. Yeah. And Rembrandt Brown is pissed about his car being late to sing the anthem. And he's like, all right, cool. I'm going to Candlestick Park. And he calls a taxi and gets gets the hell out of there. It feels so dangerous, right? Like like splitting up at this moment before they've really gotten their bearings feels, mm-hmm. as a viewer, incredibly dangerous. I mean, I, I totally understand why that is not the way Rembrandt is thinking because he doesn't have the same context as us. Yeah, But yeah, Quinn makes it through and they're like the... The rest of them are walking around the park, and uh, they notice that the statue of Abraham Lincoln that used to be there has been replaced, Adam. By an ape. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't this feel that way to you? Like, there there are so many pieces of media about the this kind of trip right the realization that you're in the wrong place yeah it's biffs in las vegas and back to the future too you know like that big reveal yeah you think you're home but you're not and i think the show does this part really well it does uh and and makes it feel all the more dangerous because now they're all split up it's it's quinn and the professor but then wade is gone and rembrandt is gone and so they know something that the other two don't and the other two are going to have their own oh shit moments And uh, yeah, this is a statue of Lenin right there where Honest Abe should be. Wade has her oh shit moment trying to use a payphone. And uh, I was sort of wondering if this was going to pitch a like communist version of the present that's going pretty good given Uh like Tracy Torway came from TNG, which was a a, a loving communist depiction of the future. And I was like, wow, what if it's, what if it's cool? And this phone 
call like completely puts that to rest. Like it's like, no, it's not cool. It's the worst. It's like the authoritarian kind of communism that they had in the USSR, which some would argue is not a true expression of communism. The detail that I really loved from this moment was the phone and sickle logo on the booth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> High five to the art department on that one. <laughs> they didn't have to do that, and it's so great. Yeah. The uh, oh shit moment for Rembrandt comes in the uh, taxi cab when he has to give the, uh, the cabbie a dollar to pay the bridge toll. Hmm. I'm not really sure... Maybe there's some other toll road in this in this horrifying Soviet future, but uh, what what makes this dimension so awful is that they're all toll roads, Ben. Yeah, but if you're starting in San Francisco, there's no toll to go to to Candlestick Park, you know. Even in '95. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're starting hmm. in Berkeley, yes, but I didn't think that they were in Berkeley. Were they in Berkeley? I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, uh, yeah, the geography of this is a little confusing. And uh, Rembrandt passes off a, uh, a green American fun buck and uh, gets arrested at gunpoint for his <laughs> trouble. I want to know how they decided how many troops to hold him at gunpoint. Because <laughs> every square inch of window to this cab is covered by someone <laughs> holding a rifle. These guys are going to shoot each other if they start pulling triggers. Yeah. They've completely encircled it. <laughs> yeah, I think they got him. They don't need exact change, is that it? It seems like Rembrandt is is the show's kind of like doofy, fish-out-of-water comic relief character, right? Does seem that way. Because, like, on the Back to the Future model, Marty is... Is just on an adventure, right? Doc Brown is the one that knows what's going on, and and you got to find Doc Brown to get home to mm-hmm. to solve the mm-hmm. problem because you can't do it yourself. Quinn could solve all of these problems himself. the The rest of them are are on this adventure for reasons. And I mean, Rembrandt as a character, like I feel so bad for him. <laughs> he's such an innocent in all this. I think crucially, he's the only character who had hope before the story began. Yeah. Everyone else is sort of in their in the pocket of what their own worlds are like, like going through their own motions, but he's like on his way somewhere, actually. He had something huge to gain from his yeah. life continuing to go that way and for the rest of them it was just kind of life as normal got upended, but he felt like he was about to change everything for the way better. That crazy part guy from earlier, he's now a political candidate. Friends of the state will always be rewarded. Yeah, he's got the like red armband. He's in the party. Yeah. And so like the three sliders are are back together again when Wade rolls up on him and tells him what they already know. Yeah. While Rembrandt's far away in this cab. So they like walk somewhere that's like some kind of like bombed out downtown slash skid row where there's like Soviet soldiers like killing dissidents at gunpoint with Kalashnikovs. But there's also like party apparatchik guys like buying hot dogs from a hot dog stand. It's like the there's like a hot dog stand in the murder alley where they do all the like political suppression. (laughs) 
Because they're really messed up future, man. <laughs> I mean, there are some really great restaurants in the Tenderloin. Yeah, you said it. Yeah, you're right. The uh, That those two things can exist in the same place yeah. is pretty fun. Like so many people are being gunned down in the prime of their lives and the hot dog guy's like, what can I get you guys? <laughs> yeah. We see where Rembrandt's been taken and it is the floor of an interrogation warehouse <laughs> where there are captors set on chairs being circled by their agents in like neat rows yeah, all the way into the distance. I mean, this is a, a great use of space. They didn't even put up partitions between the different interrogations. Rembrandt is being torn apart for trying to pass off this like capitalist pig American dollar. And uh, turns out the guy interviewing him looks a little bit familiar. Where have we seen this guy before? This was the guy from the commercial that came on TV as the as the mom was dusting and not getting railed by their gardener. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Call me right now, please. This is Ross J. Kelly. Yeah. He's the one doing the interrogation. And when Rembrandt Brown refers to this, in addition to his truth, which sounds totally crazy, this really sets off Ross J. Kelly, who like goes up to his boss and is like, what the fuck? Is this guy's deal? How does he know me? And the boss is really tripping on this. Like, how does this guy know that, Ross J. Kelly? And why is the carpet all wet, Todd? I don't know, Margo. It feels like they must have a leak coming from inside the, uh, yeah. whatever the yeah. like Gestapo is. And I think probably especially unnerving because... 50% of what Rembrandt is saying sounds totally crazy. Like he's mimicking the guy who had a brain injury in the ambulance chasing lawyers TV ad that he's seen. Right. And talking about jumping dimensions, uh, but also knows a bunch of like identifying information about this guy who's supposed to be part of the secret police. So they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to dispose of him. And uh, that's no good, man. I think it is fun and funny that in a socialist country, like a Russian socialist takeover of an American country, that the court is known as the people's court. Yeah. But I kind of wish that was a little sneakier in terms of the reveal. Like there was no not thinking about the people's court. Yeah, when, when the they people's said court that. is mentioned. Yeah. So so it's not that much of a surprise when he ends up there later on. Yeah. I felt the same way. I was like, oh, the people's court. That's funny. It's fun. When the professor gets hungry, he's got to buy a hot dog from the hot dogman. Cocked up. And in the process of paying for it, passes a green bill instead of a red bill. We know that it should have been a red bill because the hot dogman is down. Yeah. He's down for the cause. I'm just here casually selling dogs while all these people are getting murdered in front of me. Where do you think the meat comes from? <laughs> but I'm also a part of the Razy Stones. Yeah. And uh, we've heard about this a little bit like in in like news clips that we've caught on the radio and TV at this point in the episode that there is what are termed to be fascist uh, revolutionaries the party is trying to root out. 
one of the most unintentionally, maybe it was intentional, but like Wade Wells's take about uh, being pursued by the phone company <laughs> and then the cut over to what the phone company looks like that, that's trying to get her is so funny. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, there was a there was a time when just like guy in too big trench coat was just a surefire way to convey that he was a scary bad guy. So great. Yeah, so Hot Dogman uh, gets them into the tunnels. And then these tunnels, we meet the Free America Underground. There are a bunch of people down there doing things like uh, cleaning and preparing weapons and uh, cooking or like doing medicine or whatever. Like it's a whole... It's a whole town down there, basically, and it really reminded me of the depictions of the uh, of the fighters in Terminator Two, like yeah. in the Machine War in the future. Great call, yeah. You have to have that uh, shaky cam shot POV walking down the hallway, making eye contact with all like the battle hardened hippies that are like polishing their Kalashnikovs. Yeah, Wade is of special interest to one of these guys, a special romantic interest. And this is Wilkins. And he's got some questions for Arturo and Quinn. He, he seems to be just fine with Wade's deal. Yeah. He, uh, he plants one on her. Wade's getting kissed left and right by people from other dimensions. Is Wade the horniest TV character we've encountered in a long, long time? Yeah, because she does seem into this. <laughs> yes. That's, that's why I'm asking. Like, she's surprised by it at first, but like completely seems to have enjoyed her experience. In a very short amount of time, we learn that this is kind of a Red Dawn scenario. Wolverines! Yeah. The United States lost the Korean War, and that's what set this timeline in motion. And we run into a familiar character down there. Wade runs into, runs into her old boss watching TV. Yeah. And we, and we get some more backstory to this, like by flipping through the TV channels. And this is really efficient. Communist rap in the Bay Area? <laughs> I've never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we get, we get the whole history of this universe, and we learn that her counterpart is uh, alive in this universe. She is uh, in the same staging area as Rembrandt, ahead of being shipped off to gulags in Rembrandt's case and Moscow for a public execution in Wade's case. And... Uh, we learn about the gulag part from catching up on the People's Court live on television where Rembrandt comes out and uh, is actually on the TV show The People's Court. <laughs> I like how he's not physically compelled to do this. Like he pokes his head in <laughs> to those back People's Court doors and like walks in on his own to the podium and stuff. Like I think I think the effect of this is so good and pure. It's it's not like he's brought in handcuffs, you know, as he's resisting and like dragging his feet up there. Like he's he's going through this process. You have to kind of put yourself in his shoes. Like he didn't know any of the stuff that was going on in the first 30 minutes of the first episode. He just was in a snowbank and didn't know how he got there. Right. And then he thought he was back and like, since he's been back, he's been arrested for trying to give money to a taxi cab driver and is now being put on TV. Like, he has so little context and basically probably thinks he's on a prank show at this point, right? He's also the straightest shooter of 
any of the main characters on this show. Like all he does is tell the truth and all he does is get punished for it. Yeah. And the same goes here. Like he, he tries to explain what's going on with him and judge Wapner finds him crazy, but not so crazy that he can't be sentenced to 15 years in a gulag for treason. Yeah. Who knew Wapner hated capitalists this much? Incredible. Obviously, Commissar Wapner didn't believe a thing you had to say. How does that make you feel? Poor guy. Yeah. But it is very convenient yeah. that he will await being taken to the gulag in the very same facility that Doppelwade is being held, right? Yeah. Quinn is like, oh, cool. So we'll just raid the prison. <laughs> and the revolutionary guys are like, what? <laughs> you might be wondering how they do that. Well, a really really powerful general is Doppel Arturo. And so they give Jonathan Rhys Davies a uniform with a bunch of, uh, bunch of patches yeah. and, uh, and awards and stuff. That like patch of ribbons that is big enough to put a couple of fried eggs on. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got a pizza box on his chest. Was this planted at all that Doppel Arturo was the... General, like, how did Quinn know that? I, I kept rewinding this part to. I was like, like, wait, what? How did, how did that come to be? Like, what a crazy stroke of luck! We really do speed through that part of the exposition. Yeah, I mean, we are like in the jeep. We're dressed up. We're in the convoy. We're outside the prison. Like, bang, 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 bang. Yeah, and Arturo does a great job because the, uh, you know, the guard at the at the guard shack on the way in is uh, getting question asky and he's like, no, this is a surprise inspection. It's not on your schedule because it's supposed to be a surprise. And he really puts the fear of God in Lieutenant Karpov. You get the sense that Lieutenant Karpov is fucked after this, no matter what. But he lets them through. But then he places a phone call to the general's residence. And that was a smart move by Karpov, I thought. I like that this isn't so easy. Like, it's, it's not just a caper of sticking Arturo in a uniform and sticking a uniform on Wade Wells and so forth. Like, there are smart people in this universe who aren't just dupes. Yeah. And uh, Karpov is one of them. Does Arturo put on the uniform at about the same spot in the second part of the two-part pilot as Roy Scheider does in the Sequest <laughs> pilot? Yeah, we should play them side by side. <laughs> no. It's just screenplay math. You put on the uniform yeah. at about, about the halfway mark in the second half of the pilot. Final draft will kind of auto-complete sentences in that part of the script. Yeah, yeah. It's very difficult to get it out of that. <laughs> they get past the guard shack. They're into the prison. Rembrandt's getting served his shit on a shingle in a literal dog bowl. What the hell is this, dog food? Bon appetit. <laughs> Very insulting. Don't like that. Yeah. I mean, you think Arturo's hungry. Rembrandt Brown has got to be starving. And we know we know that singers don't eat before performances, Ben. Yeah. He didn't even get to stop at that hot dog shack. I know. Where they were murdering everyone. <laughs> the alarms go off, and that's because Karpov has called it in, yeah. and they have got to shoot their way out. 
this was very surprising to me. Yeah. The show up until now felt very, like the constraints of the show felt apparent in their sets and in the numbers of people in every scene. And then it just explodes here. It's wild. There's so many people. There's like Russian soldiers in like full riding boots and, you know, the crazy field coats and hats. Mm -hmm. And there's M16s and Kalashnikovs and handguns and running. People like, you know, hitting each other in the face with the butt of rifles. It's very chaotic. And the other thing that is sort of hard to follow in this is they were also trying to rescue... Doppelweid from a different wing of the prison, and we haven't seen any of that. But at a certain point, Wade is coming out with Wilkins, and they basically do sort of a a retreat action. They get everybody to the trucks and drive out of there, still under fire. Pretty great scene. Very surprising. I like the professor's roll under the truck. That was cool. <laughs> that was really John Reese Davies doing that. Amazing. That's got to be fun. <laughs> yeah, I could do that stunt. Uh-huh. On their way out of the facility, it appears as though Wade is just like taking a nap after a pretty difficult mission. <laughs> She's not napping. She's been shot because Quinn has had his hand behind her. And then when he pulls it from back there, he sees all the blood on it. Yeah. He tells the convoy to pull over and he lays her down in the grass we get the single brass instrument of watching your doppel love interest die. Yeah, but he doesn't know that yet. He thinks this is his Wade. Yeah. I kind of wish we were in this moment a little longer for that reason, right? Because as soon as Wade dies, Prime Wade appears. And there's that relief of seeing your real love interest alive again. Like, they're in such close proximity, you just don't get to be in that grief very long. Yeah, yeah. I also wanted to spend a little more time with Rembrandt in this moment because I feel like this, in fact, is the moment where it all becomes real to him. Okay. Like, he hasn't really known what to think about what's going on up until now because of how much it just hit him like a ton of bricks. But, like, he just escaped a real firefight and and is watching a woman that he presumes is one of the people that came to rescue him like bleed out on the grass in front of him. I really like that take because the Rembrandt Brown that sings Amazing Grace in the next scene is totally different from the one before the prison escape. Like yeah. that guy would never have sung Amazing Grace because he's not on the level. Yeah, he's still doing bits and kind of like making fun of everybody for speaking in technical gibberish. Yeah. And yeah, it's a really poignant scene they're pulling American flags over the bodies of the fallen. And uh, I thought it was a little sad that Wilkins didn't intend the funeral of his uh, his special lady. Yeah, I thought so too. Got a lot to do. I know that uh, I know that he's like leading the revolution now. I also thought it was too bad that Wade wasn't permitted to witness her own dead body in the scene before. Like, there seemed to be some shielding. Yeah. Of these characters from some truths, you know? Totally. So while the funeral is going on, Quinn and the professor fix up their their whole gadget and uh, get it back working again. And the professor has a theory that if they can 
make their slide from the spot that they landed in this world, they have a much better chance of returning to their home dimension. I feel like Arturo is just hungry again. He's like, <laughs> you know, I believe we should go set up shop near another hot dog vendor. Nothing quite gets my appetite up like seeing men gunned to their death. And uh, <laughs> having seen quite a lot of that, I'm now very interested. <laughs> it's very convenient. So yeah. it's not easy. It's not made to be easy. Like as soon as they leave this facility, they're challenged by a guy for their papers. Wade kicks this guy in the dick. Yeah. They start running to Golden Gate Park and then they arrive at the at the Lennon statue and and like in that classic moment of Marty banging his head on the steering wheel of the time machine like like he can't get the remote control to work. And then it finally does and the gate opens and they all dive through yeah. just in the nick of time. Yeah, they've been chased by the Gestapo which includes just kind of a bunch of townspeople. <laughs> Basically, yeah. like there's a couple of guys in neckties, but then there's like, like a hippie with long hair and like a windbreaker also running with those guys. So it's like, I don't know if this is the government chasing you. Are they Vichy hippies? <laughs> <laughs> kind of seems that way. Yeah. Oh, what a relief. They're back in their own timeline. Hey, it's the Lincoln statue. Doesn't that make you feel good? And hey, it's that hobo. Doesn't he make you feel good? He's not even running for office. This guy doesn't have a respectable political career. He sleeps outside now. Yay! <laughs> you know what I wanted more than anything? And I wonder if they ever considered this. I wanted the $2 they gave to the hobo to be red. <laughs> I know. And I wanted the money they gave the cab driver to be red too. Like, I wanted that to be the thing that they brought back and yeah. to spoil their own timeline with. That would have been great. Yeah. Time to head home, though. So, uh, for some reason, everybody wants to have dinner <laughs> at Quinn's house. This is great. There's that moment where Quinn's at the gate, and he's like, in that Johnny Cochran parlance, if it squeaks, it must be the right demeeks. <laughs> <laughs> and it does. So they go in, and it feels like they got it right. Yeah. Inside the house, mom was so worried. Just like before, that seems like Quinn's mom. Yeah. Mom consistently worried, and they all sit down for dinner. I love that mom says, I made your favorite dinner, and all you ever see on this table is coleslaw. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Quinn just really, really likes coleslaw? I mean, I eat coleslaw for lunch two, three days a week these days. So, uh, Jesus. Yeah. I, I'm right there with Quinn. Do you think that's the reason for your Miriam health problems lately? Yeah. Yeah, you do get a lot of transmissible illnesses from coleslaw, <laughs> traditionally. Yeah. Oh, just a, a feast of coleslaw. She's made enough coleslaw for six people? Yeah. That's a lot of coleslaw. I also kept just seeing the neck of the beer bottle that Quinn had in front of him. Like, everybody's drinking wine but Quinn. Who's got like a 22, right? He's got a... Oh, no. Maybe that's the wine bottle. Is it? Anyways, I thought it was a beer bottle in a couple of the shots, and I was like, that red label at the top doesn't look like an American beer. Is that like oh. communism beer? You know? And I thought that that was going to be the reveal, but no. The reveal is uh, there's a click at the door, and in walks Quinn's dead. Dad? Did I miss anything? 
Oh, man. He's going to be so pissed about the Gartner dumping in his wife. (laughs) (laughs) We end the episode with a single brass instrument of seeing a ghost. There are so many single brass instruments in this episode. There are a lot. And uh, that classic shot of the wine glass falling in slow motion onto the floor and shattering. I thought that this was a remarkably subtle ending, especially if this aired a week after the first part. Mm -hmm. Like, you only see a couple of glances of crinkled photographs of this guy. (laughs) We cut to the outside as the wine glass drops and the gardener is, like, limping away (laughs) and then then walking upright and then, like, running. (laughs) It was about the gardener the whole time. Whoa. At least the gardener was sleeping with Quinn's mom and not sleeping with the grave of Quinn's dad, Saltburn style. (laughs) Oh, that's a timely reference. (laughs) Did you like this pilot, Ben? a lot I liked about this pilot. I feel like this might be one of the weaker ones so far. Like I sort of fall where John Reese Davies does on this. Like it, it is such <laughs> a fun premise. Hungry? It's sort of a mess in execution and I think like actually really missed the the mark on on a few parts. Like one thing that I kept thinking about after reading about the comedy pedigree of uh, Robert K. Weiss, and then, you know, finding out in the Marin of this episode about the comedy pedigree of Tracy Torme is, I think I wanted the nightmare communist f- version of reality to be a little bit funnier mm-hmm. in the way of like, I wanted the revolutionaries not to be, we want, you know, a, a representative democracy with a you know parliamentary government or something like that. I wanted them to be like, we're fascists. We're trying to overthrow the communists because we think fascism is the best system. And I, I just felt like that's the one alternate reality that really gets fleshed out in this one. And I think that that's sort of the premise of the show is each, each week you go to a different alternate reality and it sucks in one way or another or is different in one way or another. And I think that to me this would have been a much more satisfying meal if like the version of communism that they had was like the Rocky and Bullwinkle version of communism. And also like, we don't really like the people that we're fighting for. Cause like, it doesn't matter, you know, like at a certain point, once they've got Rembrandt back in that prison, like they can jump at any time. Like they do not need to see things through on their way back to the base. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, like, making the realities that they visit more disposable feels like a thing that would make it more fun to play with this premise, you know? I wonder if there's a storyline math that goes, like, there are friends who only know me as funny podcast guy and are unable to take me seriously when I have something serious to say to them at any given time. (laughs) And it makes me wonder if that is a quality to an early series science fiction show, because like to your point, it's much easier to kind of play the middle or play more serious and then get fun and funny later 
than it would be to go fun and funny right out of the gate and then try to say something serious down the road. Right. This is the very special episode quality of of certain TV shows, you know? And I think by by starting sliders out like this, by not by not going fully comedic, you allow yourself the possibility of going there later where if you started that way, you wouldn't have any hope of going fully dramatic at any point. Yeah, you're trying to establish a tone that gives you the most runway for a show. Yeah, it's leaving itself out. Yeah, and I think that you got to have the courage of your convictions, and I, I kind of wish that they'd gone a little funnier with it, personally. Yeah. But I think that, like... uh the Rembrandt character like kept worrying me. Like, is this going to be a like? Oh boy, this doesn't hold up. The like one guy that knows the least about what's going on, being the black guy, just felt like an extremely risky production decision. But Rembrandt was like by far my favorite character. Like, he has so much heart, and he is like he's the most relatable one of them to me. And so you also being a singer yourself. Yeah. I can understand that. Well, I think it's also especially funny because he is sort of like the least present in reality at the beginning. Like he's the character with hope, but it's it feels like false hope, right? Like it doesn't seem like realistic that singing the national anthem at one baseball game is the kind of thing that relaunches a singing career. Yeah. But like that amount of hopefulness that he's expressing is the kind of thing that I think we all do sometimes, like engage in a little bit of wishful thinking. And when he is confronted with a series of realities in which that's totally maladaptive, like he changes in an interesting way. And I think that like, he's the character that I would watch the next episode for. Like, how does he feel about this? Does he feel like he's been robbed of his, of his life? Does he feel like that's Quinn's fault? Like Quinn and the professor are kind of the only people he knows that could ever potentially help him with this and does it does that become his raison d'etre getting back to the reality that he wants to be in yeah i really wonder how interested this show is in the other characters lives too like to know that we are dealing with the fallout of this transit to this dimension through quinn's eyes makes me wonder like Will we ever arrive at a place where, you know, Wade wants to stay? Yeah. Or one of the others wants to stay? Is that a choice that can be made? Do we still know? I feel like the trip we just went on tells us that you're not trading with your doppel. Yeah. You can exist in that same place. So it still raises questions about that Quinn that we saw in the first of the two-parter. Absolutely. I like this genre. Like, I've always liked the the episodes of shows that do this. Yeah. That show the alternate dimension. I, I always preferred Back to the Future 2 to 1 yeah. for this reason. God, I'm like struggling to think of the many examples I know exist of like this episode in a show that I like. But yeah. it's funny, like the first one I thought up was uh, Flipside and the real Ghostbusters. Like <laughs> a very scary episode in my mind. Yeah. When I was a kid, like there's something so unsettling about the familiar, but isn't quite right. Yeah. It's a kind of horror. It is. It's like something that I think Star Trek has done pretty badly overall. Like the mirror universe. Yeah. I don't really fuck with as a thing. Yeah. And 
I think, you know, is probably one of the weakest parts of early discovery is how much time they wound up spending there. But like in the defense of the mirror universe, very silly. And I, I feel like the silliness could have could have benefited this a little bit. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the mirror universe is constrained by its single quality of of evil. Yeah. I'm still very interested in the idea Quinn Doppelquinn posited earlier, which was like, there is a version of this that is beyond your wildest dreams. Yeah. And like, that is what I seek every time I slide. Like I'm chasing that dragon. So I'd be very interested in, in an idea of the mirror universe in Star Trek that was like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they've hinted at it a couple of times. Obviously, your came from a different yeah. universe. And yeah. a different time. Your had it really good. Yeah. Do you want to uh, check in on the Priority One inbox? How can we be sure these are ours, though, Ben? Oh. Maybe we'll be able to figure that out from this first one. We need some kind of squeaky hinge shibboleth to, to prove that we're in the right place. It's like the totem in uh, Inception. They, they jacked that idea from sliders. They really did. Yeah. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. This one here is from Ensign Ziggenhorn and Ziggenhorn. It is to Captain Bill Ziggenhorn of the Auburn. <laughs> okay. That message goes like this. Merry Christmas to the best dad in Cali class. Thanks for teaching us to boldly go since first contact and for always being there to beam us back up. We love you as much as you love a good shuttle mission, don't drive your wife away by talking about Star Trek all the time. <laughs> wow. A very late Christmas uh, message to Captain Bill Ziggenhorn, but uh, it sounds like a, a great dad who just needs a little bit of help in his marriage. Not too much. I mean, maybe he doesn't need any help at all. Maybe he just needs to shut up a little bit about... Uh, <laughs> about Star Trek, you know? Yeah. Captain Bill, we'll talk to you about Star Trek in your earbuds. How about that? Yeah. Sounds like your ensigns can uh, can hang in that conversation, too. Yeah. They know about keeping it on the down low. Yeah. Our next Priority One message is from Mike Mock and Kristar Shrimp Colgar. It is to Kevin Uxbridge. It was like this. Seriously, where the fuck are Raz and Plavim? Haven't heard from those guys and agents. What did you do to them, Kevin? I actually talked to Raz and Plavim uh, before the tour this year. I always blow in a message to them before we go to the Midwest to see what they're up to. Yeah? And uh, sounds like they're doing fine. We unfortunately didn't do a show in Wisconsin this time around. Otherwise, yeah. I think they would have come out. So, yeah. So what you're saying is... Rumors of my having eliminated Raz and Plavim. All Razes and Plavims everywhere have been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> You're absolved, Kevin. This one's not on you. Thank you. There's not even a crime for which you have no law. This is awesome for me. Yeah, just kick back and uh, keep drinking your tea. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe on a future tour, we'll uh, put another Wisconsin date on there. We'll uh, ride a tandem bicycle through a gas station. You know, all the classic bits <laughs> we did with Raz and Plavim all those years ago. Indeed. 
Well, Adam, we really appreciate folks that leave P1s on the show. It's a great way to help keep the lights on around here. And it's 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. You book it at MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you find yourself an Edward Larkin? Otherwise known as a uh, as a person who just caught your eye or did something strange or, you know, did something to make you laugh. That's what the Edward Larkin is. Yeah. You need to be better at maybe saying what the hell we're talking about on this show yeah. from time to time. I'm not into that. <laughs> we were uh, a guest on the Open Pike Night show, and we got some heat about that. <laughs> about making no effort to make our segments penetrable to people yeah. that were listening for the first time. About just making a show for us and us alone. <laughs> and like, if you can get it, you're a part of it. My Edward Larkin is Rembrandt. And uh, it's not really his fault that this made me laugh so much. But uh, at the end of part one and the beginning of part two, they show that, you know, 45 seconds or a minute of the same footage, like the same little edited sequence of three of them coming through the hole and then not knowing whether Quinn is going to come through. And the professor is the first one through and then Wade lands on him and it's like, oh, are they going to kiss? Like there's that weird moment that for some reason always happens in movies and TVs where a woman falls on a man or vice versa. And there's like a moment of like, should we just start making out? <laughs> like no matter who it is, this being yeah. a prime example of that, like we know that Wade loves Quinn. She does not love the professor, but there is that brief moment. Yeah. And then... Rembrandt comes through and they show this twice. The way he lands, he is like spread eagled to the camera and just like pushing Nuck against those gold lame <laughs> pants. <laughs> and it, it was like funny to me the first time. But then when I realized what was happening on the second viewing, I was like, oh, my God, they're going to show that fucking Nuck shot again. They're going to do it. And then I was like, wait, are they not going to do it? They did it. <laughs> 90s, baby. It just blew me away. <laughs> Couldn't believe that made the edit. So uh, for rocking the knuck, the hardest of any character in a show I've seen in a long time, Rembrandt is my Edward Larkin. Absolutely amazing Edward Larkin by you, Ben. <laughs> that was a total construction. <laughs> Mine is also built upon the strength of its foundation in this story. Mine's going to be The Gardener. <laughs> this show has created a world where a gardener has pierced the membrane between widow and tradesperson. Mm -hmm. You imagine on some hot day, he's out there toiling in the soil. Oh, yeah. Ramming his tool in and out of the dirt. <laughs> planting the seeds and the bulbs and so forth. Maybe she comes out and gives him a glass of lemonade, maybe. Oh, yeah. You can just see the, the, the beads of water dripping down the side of that glass of lemonade. How does it start? Does it start like that? Yeah. I mean, does she uh, get unchanged in front of a window that he can see in, like <laughs> at him for some reason? Like how hard did she go to seduce him? What was the seduction like? Darwin wishes San Francisco Bay was closer to this house so he could watch through window also. 
You see the look on Jerry O'Connell's face when he sees the gardener and his mom and his mom is pregnant. Yeah. And I really wish we could drill through the sedimentary emotions <laughs> of like, is it that she's moved on? Is it that he's going to be a brother? Is it that it's the gardener? What's the look? I'm dying to know. Uh, Jerry O'Connell, I've got a question. I know this is a, a Lower Decks panel, but in, in Sliders, season one, episode one, your character's mom is pregnant with the gardener's baby. I just want you to run down the emotions your character's feeling in that, in that scene. I'm dying to know. <laughs> I'm going to take your answer over there by the hot dogs. I feel like you get that reference. You know, Arturo reference. <laughs> it's hot. Get a life. Oh, man. Great, Larkin, Adam. Yeah. What fun we have had on this episode. Should we do a warning, boy, and then reveal what we're watching next week? Absolutely. Yeah, let's do that. I think we've been doing it in the other direction, but uh, give us a warning, bud. This is a segment uh, where we uh, shout out somebody that shouted us out by either leaving a nice review for the show on uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use, or by uh, posting on social media about what you like about the show and uh, thereby helping us find new friends of DeSoto who don't even know that they're friends of DeSoto yet. Prepare a buoy and launch it when ready. Warning, boys. An emergency buoy. A warning buoy. Ben, sometimes our great reviews come from other shows. And in this case, it came from a podcast called All Access Trek, where Anne-Marie Siegel was a guest. Friend of the podcast, Anne-Marie Siegel, was on the show to run down a bunch of of best of categories. Fun. On All Access Trek. And uh, we made her list of best podcasts. That's great. Last year... Famously, we never make any lists of any kind at the end of the year. It's really true. But Anne-Marie made sure that we made that one. That rules. She just had really nice things to say about us and our show and about how far we've come over there. And uh, she has always been just a great supporter of ours. One of the real like bright lights in the Star Trek fan community. Yeah. If you ever go to a convention and are fortunate enough to encounter Anne-Marie. Uh, she's just a great hang. So yeah, I'm going to thank her for getting the word out about our show on another show. That rules. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. So uh, if you'd like to hear your words coming out of our mouth, just uh, post online or leave a nice review. It really helps us get that algorithm working in our favor. And uh, it doesn't cost you a thing. Okay. Next week on pilot season, uh, we are going back in uh, the direction of Star Trek, mm. because this is a show that was created by, uh, what is it, the golden goose of the galaxy? What is it? The great bird? <laughs> <laughs> I like the first one. That's neat. <laughs> Gene Roddenberry's Earth, colon, Final Conflict. Really? Yeah. So he had... Uh, a couple of more sci-fi shows in, under his belt, not Star Trek, and uh, this is one of them. This is actually recommended by a friend of DeSoto as a, as a thing to check out in the off-season, and um, I, I'm glad we got the suggestion because I had not heard of this show. Yeah, what is this about? Let me look it up. I'm going to look it up right now. seems like it's free on YouTube, or you can rent or buy it from most streaming services, I think. Hmm. Okay. 
So the premise of the series is when aliens come to Earth bearing gifts for humanity, a few suspicious humans seek to discover and resist the newcomer's true designs. God, if if that were to happen, you know, that that just sounds too real. <laughs> yeah. That's how it's going to go down if it goes down. Yeah, it seems like this is very much like post-invasion uh, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. The pilot's description is police captain William Boone is asked to join the security team of Companion Da'an of the Talon, an alien race that came to Earth three years ago. Sounds like a pretty new relationship. Yeah. Could get awkward. Yeah. Get ready to watch some more extremely standard definition television, Adam. (laughs) Can't wait. It's been fun so far. Good project, Ben. Yeah, been having a great time. Um, So uh, looking forward to that next week. And we'll let Wendy take it from here. Bye-bye. Greatest Trek is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. It's hosted by Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica, and it's produced and edited by Wendy Pretty. Next week on Pilot Season, it's Earth Final Conflict, and the first episode is called Decision. And every single week, there are a handful of watch parties on board the USS Hood Discord server that you can join. You can hang out with other FODs there at DrunkShimoda.com. Thanks to Adam Ragusia, who composed the theme music for Greatest Trek. You can find his YouTube cooking channel and podcast by searching for Adam Ragusia. Thanks to Nick Ditmore for creating the show art, and thank you to Bill Tilly for managing all of the At Greatest Trek social media pages. You can find and follow those online. Also use the hashtag GreatestTrek when you post about the show. Thanks to the Max Fund members who contribute directly each month. Members get new bonus episodes monthly from Ben and Adam, and there's also an amazing back catalog of bonus content that you can work through as well. Set up your membership at MaximumFun.org slash join. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Greatest Trek. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network. Of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.